Shabbat Shalom. Torah is really meant to be heard. We say Shema Yisrael, listen Israel. Because we learn, we internalize by hearing the sacred text proclaimed aloud. Just as the Israelites heard the same words at Mount Sinai. It is a ritual that we repeat with each bat mitzvah, just like Marina tomorrow morning, as she stands and proudly chants the Hebrew from the scroll in front of her community. But this week's Torah portion, Bohukotai, is the one exception to that rule. When the reader gets to the second half of Leviticus chapter 26, they are supposed to shift their voice to a whisper just barely audible to the congregation, chanting quickly and without pause. The rabbis called this section of Bohukotai of our Torah portion, the tochacha, or the rebuke, because verse after verse warns the Israelites of all of the terrible calamities that will befall them if they do not follow God's laws everything from natural disasters to cannibalism. The text bred such discomfort that the rabbis instituted the custom that you should speed read through it and get over with it as soon as possible. Marina is not doing that tomorrow. We didn't assign her those. We didn't assign her those verses. And I don't know what it says about my personality, but each year I am drawn to the creative cruelty of the punishments. It's like a horror blockbuster movie that you know you shouldn't enjoy, but you somehow do, because they teach you so much about human psychology. Or at least in these verses case, they teach you about how the Torah and God understand human beings. This year, I kept coming back to verse 39. And the Hebrew is a little tricky, so I'm going to give you a couple of different translations. In the Torah commentary in front of you, in our Chumash that we use from Plout, it translates it as, those of you who survive shall be heartsick over their iniquity in the land of your enemies. More, they shall be heartsick over the iniquities of their ancestors. So that's one sense, that you'll be in the land of your enemies heartsick for everything that you've done and everything that your ancestors did. But if you look at an early Aramaic translation of the Hebrew, at Targum Jonathan, it translates it as, those who remain shall melt away for their sins in the land of their enemies, for the evil sin of their fathers, which they held fast to in their hands, just like them, they shall melt away. And then just for fun, the King James Bible translates it as, they that are left of you shall pine away in their iniquity in the land of your enemies. So the challenge in the Hebrew, I'm going to read it to you one more time, is v'hanisharim b'chem yimaku ba'avonam. The challenge is the verb yimaku. What does that verb mean? 
Does it mean heartsick over? Does it mean pine for? Does it mean melt away? And usually the best way to figure out linguistic or grammatical questions is that you look at the Spanish commentator Ibn Ezra. And he points out in his commentary that the verb is only ever used in the prophets, later in the Hebrew Bible, and it means to weaken physically. But even more, because I'm seeing several physicians in the room, it's more explicit than that. In Zechariah, it says, his flesh shall be consumed away. And in Isaiah, it says that his flesh will have such a stench that it will melt on his body. So basically, some really horrible disease or injury that causes your body to literally deteriorate quickly. So I'm going to vote for the translation of Targum Jonathan. I'm going to read it to you one more time. Stick with me. Those who remain of you shall melt away for the sins in the land of your enemies and for the evil sin of your ancestors, which you held fast to in your hands. Just like them, you shall melt away. It is a haunting description. You've already been exiled to the land of your enemies away from your home. And now, as a stranger in a strange land, you are wasting away because of the choices of those that came before you. I don't believe in a theology, in a God that punishes us for the sins of our parents. But I do think that we are all inevitably shaped by the choices that our parents and grandparents made. And that even when we fight it, their influence is often felt in our lives even against our better judgment. So when I parsed this verb out this week, it made me think of the recent debate about epigenetics within the Jewish community. Epigenetics is the idea that trauma can leave a chemical mark on a person's genes, which is then passed down to subsequent generations. It's not a mutation, but rather an internal alteration in how the gene functions. So it's not genetic, but epigenetic. Again, all the doctors can come talk to me during the ONEG to tell me whether that was a good translation. There have been really interesting studies recently on the children of survivors of Civil War POW camps in the United States and of the Dutch famine towards the end of World War II and just recently on the children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. And while I'm not qualified to determine the accuracy of this research, I am captivated by the questions that it raises. Can trauma be inherited? Can the experience of our ancestors, who we may have never met, impact our health today? Can we literally feel physically what our ancestors experienced? And what does this mean for us as a Jewish community in particular? Is that what Leviticus means when it says that we will melt away for the sins or the experiences of our ancestors? In writing about this topic in The Atlantic, journalist Ol Olga Kazan starts on a personal note. She says, often when I complain to my therapist about how stressed out I am, she'll say some variation of the same thing. Well, you're an Ashkenazi Jew, so you have a lot of intergenerational trauma. You know, 
because of everything that's happened to you. So of course you're anxious, she seems to be saying. You're Jewish. You may have had a therapist say that to you at some point in your life. Or since I see two psychiatrists and therapists in the sanctuary, you may have said that to someone in your practice. It's certainly a common stereotype of the Jewish personality that's reinforced in pop culture and for many of us in our lived experience of our own mental health or those of our family members. What would it mean if 2,000 years of trauma have made us like this? What if Olga Kazan's therapist is right? What if it's not nurture, but nature that has made us somehow more anxious than others? And I want to stop and say that these questions often inspire a fearful hesitancy in me. Eugenics, eerily close to epigenetics, taught us in the 20th century that biology is not and should not be fate. It also warned us of the dangers of thinking of Jewishness as a genetic or racial identity. Many of us, in fact, most of us in this sanctuary do not have a direct family history with the Holocaust or other traumas that we may think of as part of at least Ashkenazic Jewish history. We have particularly diverse stories of how we came to sit and celebrate Shabbat in San Francisco in 2019. And like so much of the 23andMe-inspired movement to understand our genetic, our genetic identity, there are both risks and rewards. Knowing what percentage of Ashkenazi Jew you are or are not can certainly add to our self-understanding, but science cannot tell us who we are. It can only add a layer to a larger portrait of our self within community. Dr. Rachel Yehuda is a psychiatry and neuroscience professor at Mount Sinai. She grew up with Holocaust survivor grandparents in Cleveland, not surprisingly, and she does most of the research on how trauma and resilience crosses generations. Particularly, she studies the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. And she was recently interviewed on NPR, and she reminded listeners of something that really struck me, that this process goes both ways. She said, I think one of the things that can be very empowering about this is that just as we pass on the trauma, we also pass along the coping strategies. We pass along the ability to teach someone how they might deal with something that we've passed on to them. That's the piece, at least the beautiful piece, that I take on this conversation. That perhaps our history is both the disease and the cure. That Torah and the community that it creates can be a balm for our wounds. Sometimes when I read these studies and when I reflect on my own identity as the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, and I think of my own anxiety, I feel both grateful for the great fortune of my birth. I feel so grateful for who my parents are. I feel so grateful for the history that was so drilled into me as a child. And there are other days where I'm angry at the injustice of it, where I think about what I am passing down to my children. 
But all of these moments are ones where I want to loudly proclaim the words of Torah and at those same moments, whisper them as quickly as I can. But when I read Leviticus and I think about, I think about whatever your theology, I think about what we inherit and I think about who we are and I think about the pieces of us pieces of us that we may not have chosen, pieces of us that we may not even be aware of that impact how we see the world and how we breathe in it. I take great comfort that Torah is mine, that Jewish life is a series of stories, of rituals and traditions that have developed to help us deal with our stuff, that Torah and the commentary that it creates is a balm for our wounds. Shabbat Shalom.